Thank you for joining Bevel Talk, Season 1, Episode 3. Pipe welding in the field can be challenging. Today, we're talking about preparing for a successful job site on both mega projects and smaller construction projects. Let's get right into it. Welcome to Bevel Talk, the podcast where we discuss the everyday challenges of welding pipe in the field. We're back with Justin and Chris from Kiwit. Today, we're going to carry on from our conversation last time about who Kiwit is. We're going to talk about some challenges and struggles of welding pipe in the field on these large projects, these LNG plants or power plants that Kiwit is working on. So, Justin and Chris, thanks for being with us again. We have some more questions for you. Pretend like you guys have never been on these job sites or pretend you're taking, you know, somebody that's brand new to the industry onto a $500 million or a billion dollar job site. You know, they've never seen 30 cranes in the sky. Talk us a little bit, talk to us a little bit about what that's like, what, what these job sites are like, what's the challenges, what's the major roadblocks that are, you guys are overcoming every day. Yeah, it's definitely something you start taking for granted. The, the, the more and more you see it, the more and more you plan for it. Um, but I, you know, I remember being in that position, you, you know, just, just younger, you know, my teens seeing these projects and you just look at these projects from the outside and go, you know, how do you, where do you even begin? You know, how do you even fathom putting all that together and all the complexity? Um, and, and just like everything else, it's, it's breaking it down to its basic components. Typical timeline we have to, to start putting the pieces together is, you know, bigger projects. It could be a couple years out, smaller projects. That timeline gets a little bit tighter, but it, it starts with engineering and design. Like I mentioned, we're, we're an EPC contractor, so we, we do a lot of our engineering um, for a lot of the larger OGC work, uh, we use a, we'll, we'll, we'll joint venture with a large engineering firm to carry that risk. But it's it's from the ground up. Hey, you know, owner, what do you want? Oh, we want a power plant that makes 800 megawatts. Great. Okay, these are the designs you're probably looking at to generate that. And you just kind of start going from there. And we start working with our suppliers and obviously engineering, like I said, and start putting together the rough pieces of what this thing is going to look like. And uh, then, you know, you start getting to the point of schedule. Okay, how fast do we need to do this? And the, the heart of any construction company really is the estimated. You, know, you have to be able to accurately predict how long it's going to take, first of all, and then from how long it's going to take uh, in terms of man hours, then you can start putting a cost to things actually pretty easily. Uh, almost to the point I like to joke how easy it is to, to bid a, a, a combined cycle power plant. If you told me the megawatts, I could probably tell you the, the price within 10% because we, we built so many of them. Uh, I'm a little bit facetious there, but you know they, they're engineered to be constructible in the field as quick as possible. And we, there's a lot of front work in our constructability department to, to help that. Um, a lot of feedback mechanisms to help uh, speed up construction and make things uh, easier and, and safer to build. But it's, it's just like any project. You start from the individual pieces. You know the end goal you want to get. And it's just a lot of people working a lot of hours to, to pull it together. Um, some of these larger projects, you, know, you might have a million man hours in the office before setting a foot in the field to, to do the engineering and the planning behind behind these projects. One of the things we're lucky enough at, at Qit to have, and I mentioned this earlier, is, is a, a large technology group. So if I want to pull historical costs, schedules, if I want to dig down into how long it took to do something, how many people are on it, whatever that might be, whatever metric I'm looking for, you know, we can go data mining all day long. Um, I was trying to pull a report 
couple weeks ago and we we're having issues getting it load because just a simple uh, past cost report had 13 million line items in it that we were trying to sort through to get the data I wanted for some estimating. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of planning and uh, just a, a lot based on, on past experience, honestly, um, in, in formulating our processes and procedures. Uh, I think that went a little bit off topic from, from your, from your initial question, but um yeah, it, it really is a, a sight to behold that that much cramped uh, in, in that small of an area. We start st- stacking a bunch of trades, having a ton tons of uh, cranes in the air, and you're you're trying to synchronize it all as much as possible to, to cut that schedule down. It's one thing clients want if they're hiring EPC contractors to condense schedule. You know, they make their money when that plant fires up. So it's it's schedule first typically, and then it's, it's money second. You know, and, and to add to that, if for lack of a better word, from a civilian's perspective, from the outside looking in on these mega projects, you know, it, it's a, it could be kind of mind-boggling from a logistical nightmare. You know, how do you manage these people on, on a project of that size? And we're talking three to 4,000 craft alone with 1,000 a, a staff on top of that. So you're in the neighborhood of five to 6,000 people on these mega projects, and every one of them knows where to go, and they all have a task to do. And I think that's just a cool perspective to look at from uh, from a welder or uh, or a tradesman. Like, how are these built, and how do you manage these people? So I remember my first thought when I went onto a major project was, how do I not get lost? I mean, we were basically turning a cornfield into a power plant, right? Mm-hmm. And in the complexities of that, you've got earth moving, you've got infrastructure, you've got to put in, you've got roadways, you've got electrical, whether it be generator, what. Well, you know, you said four, four, four to 6,000 people on a job. How do you manage all of those people's, all of the trades, all of the scheduling, all of the everything? I mean, just blows my mind. Yeah, I've been on, on mega projects before. We, we had a dedicated bus routes and a bus dispatch and you could, you know, bus stops. So you literally leave your, your work site, go to the bus stop and there's a little sign just like a bus stop in a city and the bus would show up every 15 minutes. And if the bus wasn't there, you could call the bus line and be like, where's the bus? And then it was broke down or, or whatever it is. But, we, you know, we were flying chartered 737s into private airfields. And that's how we're getting the craft in. I mean, the just the budget to get the craft to the project, let alone the project, was bigger than, you know, probably 95% of most construction projects in North America. So, yeah, just, just mind-boggling uh, complexity and, and scale. So how do you prepare the craft or the welders for those kind of jobs? I mean, you guys mentioned before that, you know, you're turning over workforce every time you go to a new job. What are you doing? Really just breaking it down to its bits. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I'll say a bunch that, you know, pipe welding is pipe welding is pipe welding. Well, and that's oversimplification, but whether it's a power plant or refinery, we're still taking two pieces of pipe. We're getting them close enough to weld and we're putting somebody with the appropriate skill set on it to join it together. And, you know, it's not like in a refinery, we use different welding processes than in, than in a power plant or whatever. So we really start there. Hey, you know, we're welding these materials and we're using these processes. So we go out and take a look at the local labor pool, see what their, their skill set is, you know, different parts of the country. If you're building a power plant where a lot of refineries were built in the past 20 years or, or whatever, something of that nature, you're probably going to have a pretty good chance getting a lot of high caliber industrial welders. If we're going to an area where, you know, the biggest pipe they see is some copper tube being in a commercial setting, 
you know, we definitely tailor our approach to, okay, this is going to be a little more like bootstrap, get these people up to speed and knowledge about what industrial work means. But it, it really starts in the same place. You know, you're interacting with local craft um, and we'll go in and do dedicated training, especially to our procedures and processes and really just try to instill what the basic expectations are the first day that they walk on site. So whether it's, hey, this is what the gate test is and these are the skills you're going to need and help them with that skill set or what our procedures are or just even what our culture is. Um, if you've never worked for a big contractor before, it can be daunting to, to show up on site and you're in an orientation with 100 other craft from 10 other ten different trades. And then you're getting handed off to your, your superintendent or foreman, whoever, to take you up to your, your joint or whatever it is, your first joint in, in the field. We, we, we try to help make sure that they understand what, what this whole thing is going to mean for them. And, and to follow up on that, that kind of goes back to last episode where we were talking about, you know, what does it take for these, for our welding managers and, and how are we successful for, on these mega welding projects? And that, that's it. You know, we, we've got to have that strong welding support personnel on site to manage the, the, the movement and logistics of just welders alone, let alone making sure the pipe's where we need it and, and all that stuff. So it really does come down to your weld management and your staff on, on how well you can prepare and, and plan ahead. Business as usual can cost you thousands of dollars each year and waste hundreds of hours of productive time. Investing in ArcReach technology from Miller can add up to big savings. See how much you can save at MillerWelds.com ArcReach. One thought that I keep having going through my head is, is every welder on the job qualified to do every weld that's required to do the job? How, I mean, how's that managed? No. Um, yeah. If we were trying to bring every welder out at the, you know, the highest experience level, it'd be, it'd be tough to man a job for sure. The basic breakdown in our world is you have structural and then you have pipe welders. So structural American welding society, typically your iron workers, uh, maybe a millwright here or there, uh, boiler makers if you're talking union craft to some extent. Uh, and then you have your, your pipe wellers are typically, not to offend anybody listening to this, but typically the more, the more skilled set because you're dealing with tougher to weld alloys. You're typically welding in tough positions. Um, even a pipe in, in like the most ideal position, you're still going from an overhead weld to a vertical weld to a flat weld when you're done. Um, so that's kind of the, the basic segregation. And because TIG stick is still so prominent, it's relatively easy to find skilled TIG stick hands in the industry. So we'll have a bunch of welders that maybe only have that certification, you know, and they're, they're doing socket welds, maybe supports, um, some small, uh, larger diameter pipe welding. And then another tier real is our semi-automatic welders. So that's your R and D, your flux core, um, and those are the welders targeting your, your large bore, your heavy wall. You know, we might have pipe walls up to three inches thick for primary steam lines. That's the, call it the highest tier or however you want to do it. So typically I call it like three pools. You have structural, they're not even worrying about pipe. It's not in their scope. And then you have more or less kind of two tiers of pipe, your, your take stick, and then your, your semi-automatic on your big bore. How many welders out there you think have ever actually seen a pipe that's three inches thick before walking onto one of these projects? Well, it's funny. We were welding a PQR in the procedure qualification record right at WPS in the shop here a couple of weeks ago. We were welding a, a two-inch thick plate. Um, 
because we had some two and a half inch, three inch uh, wall pipe in the field coming up. And we had a, uh, a first year apprentice uh, class in there and they were baffled by how thick that plate was. Now, if you've ever done a PQR before, we typically use, we use plates to do our qualification. So that plate was only 12 inches long. So he said, oh, yes, this is very thick. But now imagine this was a pipe 24 inches in diameter. And, uh, yeah, it kind of uh, – they, they were new to the trade, you know, so very, very representative of what we're talking about here. And when they put that – built that picture in their head that, oh, wow, it took you just how long to weld? We're doing a take stick procedure actually too. So it, it took a while. And so now let's extrapolate that, multiply that by 30, and, you, you know, you might be at this joint for a week and a half sort of thing. So it really helped put it in perspective for them just seeing that little demo even. Um, yeah, cause it, it's not very common. That's incredible. Do you guys have welders that'll transfer from stick and TIG to, to your semi-automatic processes? Is there a lot of back and forth between that? Or is it kind of, I'm a stick TIG welder and that's what I'm going to be on these jobs? Absolutely. T- typically, we'll, we'll start with our R&D guys, which will kind of hold them at a higher tier. We, we, our gate test for them will still be a TIG stick gate test. And the reason for that is just to kind of eliminate some confusion on the projects. If, you know, if you're just single certifying welders to, you know, one type of process, you're going to have, you're going to have way too many welders on your side. So we try to look at it to where, you know, the, the higher skill guys will train them or excuse me, test them on, you know, TIG stick, uh, you know, and then RMD flux core. So we try to double certify, if you will. And that way we can have them go across the board. But that being said, we, we don't, okay, you can't TIG, so we're not going to give you an R&D test. And that's, that's not true. So, you know, we'll, we'll find out what our welders are, are proficient in, and that's what we'll test them in. Okay. That's fantastic. I mean, what percentage of welding on your job sites do you think is stick and TIG versus your semi-automatic on a typical project? We, we typically break it down by, by large bar and small bore and small bore green socket welds. So two and a half inch and under, uh, on a power project, we're about 95% semi-automatic on a large bore pipe. That is our operating standard. When we build a plant, we estimate, assuming we're doing semi-automatic, the small bore socket welded stuff. That's typically where we, we do a lot of TIG stick. You know, if, you, if you're welding a socket weld, breaking up the flux core gun, just it, it's hard to manage. Um, it's just not worth the setup time, and uh, we can weld them just as fast. Honestly, we, we TIG weld a lot of those. So that's kind of the dividing line. So you're 95 percent plus on the large bore uh, for power anyway. And our oil and gas market, some clients have a few other restrictions or, or, or procedure requirements that uh, modify how we do some stuff, but we try to keep the same model there. And again, uh, TIG or TIG or stick for the small stuff. One last question for you guys, for both of you, what is the biggest thing that keeps you up at night from a job site? This is a very, very hard question that could have multiple, multiple answers. But for me, some of the quantifiable things that, that, we do in our, our, our industry is safety and weld reject rate. And no matter how hard we work, no matter how good the people are that we hire, you can almost guarantee you're going to have a reject rate. And our goal is always, you know, let's drive that down to zero. And I'm not, I'll never say that it's impossible, but it's, it's very hard to do. And knowing that at the end of the day, the welders are responsible for, you know, completing this project under budget on time and with no safety incidents. And, and that's something that, we have to answer for, even though we're not the ones really putting the weld in. And that, that's, 
that's the hardest thing for me. You can do everything, cross your I's, dot your T's, whatever you want to do, and you can't stop rejects on a big project like that. Yeah, I, I'd echo that. Um, I have a, another saying, go, 2G joints keep me up at night. Um, <laughs> literally. So it's kind of funny to ask that question. Um, we do a lot of ultrasonic testing, phase array in particular, and welding horizontally has been taken for granted for, for a long time when you can couple it with RT inspection. When you start doing ultrasonics, it's really, really easy to pick up lack of fusion type defects on the bottom bevel. So I always prefer 5G joints from, from an inspection and weld reject rate standpoint. So yeah, I always say 2G joints keep me up at night. Okay. I would agree with that. Thank you for listening to Bevel Talk. You've been listening to Justin Morse and Chris Reidner from Kiwit. Join us next time as we talk about labor and labor relations on these mega projects. <laughs>